Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. How many of you have ever found yourselves in a conversation where, uh, where somebody says something and then right away you can feel yourself becoming uh, very emotionally, uh, I guess the intensity increasing? Have any of you ever had a conversation like that? It feels like a normal conversation, and then, and then you just get set off, and you're starting to get a little, maybe a little bit angry. I was, um, it was just a normal day at home, and I was sitting down on the couch to, I think we were going to watch a movie or something as a family, and I'd, I'd brought with me this, like a box of crackers or a bag of chips or a tub of nuts or whatever it was. It was the whole tub, right? And I, I carried it into the living room, and I sat down on the couch, and, uh, and a, a family member, very respectfully, uh, suggested to me that instead of bringing the whole container in and sitting down with it in my lap, that I portion some out in the kitchen and then come in and walk in and sit down because they, they were concerned that I would eat the entire, the entire bag myself. And, um, and I said to them, well, what a, what a, what a thoughtful suggestion. Thank you. For, thank you for saying that. Um, no, that's not what happened. Like, I, I sat there quietly for a few moments. I recovered, and it didn't ruin the, our, our night But this time. But I, like, they say it, and for a few moments, like, I'm just stewing over my bag of chips, like, getting a little more angry, a little more agitated. I'm thinking to myself all of these self-righteous thoughts, like, oh, I'm an adult. I can manage my own portion control. Don't don't tell me what to do. I, you know what? I'm going to eat what I want to eat, and nobody here should say anything to me about it. I, I paid for this food. Um, but, you know, the reality is that um, as I'm telling myself these stories, the reality is that I more likely than not would sit down with that bag and eat the entire thing while we watch the movie. Um, and, and although I can say this is true right now and, and I can talk about it, there's these moments when life is happening that sin and, and deception sort of sneak inside there. And, and I will tell myself things like, I'm going to sit down with this bag of chips. I'm going to eat 7 to 13, whatever the you know, sensible portion is. And, and then I'm just going to set the bag of chips next to me on the couch and I'm going to stop eating. Like that would ever actually happened. But I convinced myself in a moment that this is how life is. Um, I, I can say today, and I can identify this as like, uh, you know, self-control around delicious salty snack foods. I can identify it as a growth area. And I can think about that. But this person who stands before you today and very maturely talks about this issue is the same person who's completely overcome by compulsion when I'm in that situation where, uh, where, you know, where I have to actually live out this truth that I can talk about in my head. Um, and, and if I could step outside of my own mind in those moments, or you know, if I had sort of a bird's eye view of my experience as a human being and, and salty snack foods, I, 
I think at times I would I would say to myself, how remarkable is it that the same person who can, you know, be overcome with with a desire to indulge in potato chips, you know, is the same person who can stand up here and and rightly divide the word of God uh, before you all. It's incredible the amount of disparity that we can find between who we are and and who we are. Um, you know, we've been talking about the story of the blind man in, in John chapter 9. Uh, this this story is is a poster story of like spiritual blindness and and self-deceit and self-righteousness. Um, it's a story about those who claim that they can see and yet who are actually blind and, and how it isn't the, the actual blindness of us that leaves us condemned, but it's, it's, it's when we try to claim that we can see that we find ourselves uh, condemned. Uh, Proverbs 3, uh, 34 says, uh, it's quoted twice in the New Testament, but it, it says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, the Apostle Peter quotes it in one of his letters, and, and, and James the Apostle quotes it as well. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, and I think today, in, in many ways, today's all about the importance of humility and how that plays a role in our receiving God's grace. And there being room for God's grace to work in our lives. And, and in some ways, as I came into this week and... and and I'm thinking about the story that we've already done for a couple of weeks. Um, and then I'm thinking about this idea of humility. And I, I start to worry that maybe I'm a broken record. And, and maybe worse than that, that I'm a, a boring broken record. Because uh, there, there are a few things that would uh, make me feel uh, more anxious than the thought of coming in and boring all of you for 25 or 30 minutes. Um, but then there's this other part of me that sets... Some of those thoughts aside, sorry, my device is falling asleep on me. Uh, speaking of boring, <laughs> there is other part of me that sets that aside and is is less concerned about my ability to keep you entertained and more concerned for your own welfare, specifically your spiritual welfare. You know, in the last couple of years, I've had far too many conversations with people where you, you sit down with somebody and, and they begin to open up to you about the realities of their life that they've been living in denial about for far too long. There's self-deceit at work and, it, and it's often facilitated far too easily by, by a, a pride or a desire to be seen a certain way. And these things are now manifesting in their lives where their lives are falling apart. And I, I had the opportunity to uh, travel to Montana this week and catch up with some missionaries, uh, uh, some missionaries that we support with Steps of Justice. They, they do work in Cambodia and then also in, in Kalispell. And, uh, and then another missionary friend that I uh, have known, family friend for years, uh, many, many decades. And, and this particular missionary friend has, has worked for decades doing kind of a, a deep healing type ministry. And I was having coffee with him on Thursday morning before we jumped in the car and drove back over here, and uh, he was just talking about the incredible need that exists in, in the valley where he lives, and, and then he does a fair amount of speaking on a, a YWAM base there with missionaries, talking about the incredible burden 
that so many people are just carrying around every day, profound brokenness, profound blindness, that we sort of keep buried and hidden as long as we possibly can. And the only time it ever comes out is when everything is starting to fall apart. I wonder what we will see when we embrace the opportunities that the Holy Spirit gives us and is inviting us into to live open-eyed in the presence of God together, honest about who we are, what we're struggling with, and what's going on. Before we turn to John chapter 9, let's pray. Lord, we just acknowledge you as the one who sees everything. We thank you that you see us and you are wholly committed to loving us. We thank you that what you see lurking in the dark corners of each of our hearts is nothing that causes you to shy away or shrink back or be shocked, but you see it all. You've known it all before we even knew it, before we ever did it, before we ever thought it. Lord, you know us completely. And we put our hope today in this idea that you love us completely. Thank you for your incredible love. We pray that your truth would transform us today as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're turning to John chapter 9, I'll review really quickly, catch, catch those of you up who haven't been here. So there's, there's a blind man in John chapter 9, and the disciples are asking Jesus about why is this man blind? Why was he born blind? Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? What's going on? And, and Jesus tells him that, that this isn't because of the man's sin or his parents' sin, but that this has all happened because God has a plan to display his power in this person's life. And then Jesus heals the blind man, and he can see. And then the people in town, this causes quite a stir because the people in town are like, isn't this the guy who's been sitting and begging all this time? And, and some people think he is, some people think he isn't. If he isn't, then who cares? But if he is, then a miracle has happened here. Um, and so there's a bit of a, a, a hubbub in town. The Pharisees get involved. They're trying to investigate what's happened here. And they find out that, yes, this is, he, the man says, I was blind. I can see now a miracle has happened but then this miracle has happened by this guy, Jesus, who's a bit of a controversial guy because he doesn't follow all the Pharisees' rules. And so there's a lot of debate about what's going on. At one point, the Pharisees invite the man's parents in to interview them because they just can't get over this idea that a blind man can see. And they're like, is this really your son? Is this, was he really born blind? And, and the parents say, look, yeah, he's really our son. He was really born blind. We have no idea how he can see now. Why don't you ask him yourselves? And, uh, and so they do. John chapter 9. They'd already asked him once, and they're talking to his parents. Now they ask him again. John chapter 9, 24. This is where we'll pick up the story today. It says, a second time, the Pharisees summon the man who had been blind. And they say to him, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. So the... The blind man's like, look, this guy healed me. It's Jesus. I'm pretty sure he's from God. And the Pharisees are like, he couldn't be from God because he does way too much controversial stuff. We don't think he is. And so here they're bringing him in a second time saying, look, give glory to God. We want you to denounce this man who healed you as a sinner. Give glory to God. Denounce this man. No way God could use someone who doesn't follow the rules. By the rules, of course, they mean our rules, their rules. 
So he replies to them, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Something undebatably good has happened in this man's life. He was blind, now he can see. He doesn't know about deciding who's in or who's out or who's righteous or who's not. But he knows that God has done something indisputably good in his life. And so they ask him, they say, well, what did he do to you? How was it that he opened your eyes? And this is feeling a little bit like a rerun because just a few verses back, they asked all of these questions and we ran through this already. And so this time around, the man says, hey, look, I already told you what he did and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Which is an obvious little barb at them. They hurled insults at him. They come unglued, right? They're having a conversation. Things are, are going maybe the way that you would expect a pharisaical interrogation to go. And then he says this, and it's like they go nuts. They hurl insults at him. They say, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as far as this guy, we don't even know where he comes from. Of course, in the Pharisee's mind, Moses is legitimate. This man is not. Moses represents for them the record of God's revelation to the people of God way back in the day, right? Uh, Moses is, is, of course, God spoke to Moses in that time, in that place, and gave him a revelation of, of who he was, and that revelation was good. But if we understand Jesus' place in that story, we believe that Jesus came as the fullness of God's revelation, a, a word that would speak for all time about who God is. Yeah, and, and we believe that, that the Torah or all that Moses had written down and the teachings and the prophets and, and the poetry and everything that, that was from the Old Testament that the Pharisees at this time held in very high regard, we believe that all of that is pointing to Jesus. These first century Jews, what they had done in, in many ways was to, to, to deify Moses or, or to, uh, to deify Moses' revelation to the point that it's not, it's not God who they're excited about following, but it's the teachings of the Torah. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the, the writings that are meant to lead people to God become the thing themselves. Uh, I, I think the one thing I could compare this to is, and you'll see them around town, and they're probably well-meaning people, but like you have churches that say like we're a Bible church, and I'm like <laughs> Christians aren't following the Bible. Christians are following Jesus. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. And, and yes, the Bible has an incredibly important place in our faith, but the reality is, is the Bible is not God. God is not going to be replaced by anything. And I think we're seeing a similar thing here with these Pharisees where they're so committed to what God has said to Moses that they cannot see what God is doing here in this moment before their very eyes in this day. They can't see it. And if there was a way for them to step outside of, of the confines of, of their mind, right? If there was a way for them to come out of their situation and have a, a bird's eye view or like a God's eye view of what's going on, I imagine they would have thought to themselves, how remarkable is this? How can this be? The very people with whom God has entrusted the revelation of his character, the very people who are the keepers of the sacred texts that point to God cannot recognize him when he shows up. When the image of God 
the, the fullness of God takes on flesh and dwells in their midst, they don't recognize him. And these are the exact people who are, you would think, these are the people who should see him. The only one who sees him here is the blind guy. Come on. It's thick with irony. How can it be that in the same people, you'd have the most committed people to God, and yet they're missing the boat? The man answers to them, and he says, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to a godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Obviously, in this blind man's eyes, it's a little more simple to him than the 613 commandments and whether Jesus is following them all right. Correct? There's, and this is the way that I would, I would describe this as a relational truth. Because behind all the rules and the laws, it's all about humanity walking in the right kind of relationship that God has called us to walk into, that he's created us to walk into. And so r- relational principles tend to be able to be stated a lot more simply than trying to get your bullet points of every command and every way that we should relate to one another. And yet, relational principles are oftentimes a lot more complicated to actually live out and walk in. It leaves a lot more gray area. It leaves a lot more room for give and take. We attended a a wedding yesterday, uh, some old friends from church who are getting married, and and they go through the vows. And I remember thinking when the vows are happening, like, they're never that long, right? I mean, a few lines that people say to each other. And within those few lines is contained a lifelong commitment for anything that might come up. I think, what would it, what would it look like to try to craft a, a wedding vow that would cover everything that comes up? I mean, it would be an impossible task because we're talking about, you know, the, the height of our experience in relational truth when you're talking about something like marriage. Anything might happen. How can you be ready for it? How could you make a rule or a statement that would cover it all? You can't. This blind man is tapping into the reality of who God is and what he's doing here in this moment while the Pharisees are missing it. Part of that reason is because the Pharisees' paradigm for all of this starts with what what they think they know because of what they have been taught and what they've learned and discovered. For this, this blind man, his paradigm starts with the reality that God has graciously opened his eyes. You think about your own faith and how you approach God, and, and, and especially for those of us who maybe grew up in the church, it's very easy to fall into a place where our paradigm is based on what we've, what we've been taught, what we've read, what we know. But the reality is, is for each of us, our relationship with God comes through the miracle of him entering our world and transforming our reality opening our eyes, bringing us from darkness into light, raising us from dead to alive. What a, what a good place for your paradigm to start. This is all just a miracle. And here I am to walk with the one who has opened my eyes. The Pharisees reply to this. They say, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out. 
Verse 35. Jesus heard they'd thrown him out. And when he found them, when, sorry, he heard, he, heard they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, I, I had to stop there because I have this picture of Jesus. You know, this is all happening in Jerusalem and, and Jesus is doing his thing. And, and he's gone when the blind man's first being questioned. And, and who was it who healed you? We can't find him anywhere. So they're just questioning them. And then this thing happens where the, the trial doesn't go well. The guy gets kicked out. And, and I think probably in many ways he's just been thrown out of the trial by the power brokers in his religion. We're probably looking at a case of excommunication here. He's been thrown out of the synagogue. Remember his parents, when they were brought in to testify, were very careful about what they said because anyone who spoke positively of Jesus was going to be kicked out of the church. This guy gets kicked out of church, and who comes looking for the one who's been excommunicated? The head of the church. Who cares about the one who's been cast aside? The only one who matters. Jesus hears the man is thrown out. He goes out. He's pursuing him. He's searching for this one who's been thrown out. And he comes to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is the title for the messianic figure from the, the prophet Daniel. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, the man replies, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him, and in fact, he is the one who is speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Notice Jesus doesn't have to argue with him. Jesus doesn't have to prove anything to him. Because this man paradigm, man's paradigm starts with, God has done a miracle in my life. I was blind. I can acknowledge I was blind. And now I can see. Because of that, as he's invited into this reality where Jesus says to him plainly, I'm the one who was promised. The one who's talking to you right now is the son of man from Daniel. I'm the prophet who was promised who would be in the, in the line of Moses. I'm the king who was promised who would be in the line of David. I'm the whole kitten caboodle. It's me. The man says, I believe in you. And then he worships him. There's only three times before Jesus is crucified, that people worship him in Scripture. The first time is, is the, the, uh, the Magi, the wise men who traveled from the east. They showed up in Bethlehem uh, around the time that uh, Jesus was a toddler, um, and they worship him there. How, how crazy is that? The first time Jesus is worshiped is by the people who are from out of town, the people who aren't a part of God's people. Isn't that it's just mind-blowing. The, the second time is after Jesus uh, walks on the water, he invites Peter out of the boat. And it says, when he gets back into the boat, the wind and the waves uh, still, and, and the people in the boat just worship him. You know, these moments when humanity's eye is open to who Jesus is, the creator of the universe there in flesh. And then the only other time that it says he's worshipped by somebody is this moment with the guy who's been excommunicated for his beliefs. Jesus goes and finds him, reveals himself to him, and this man sees Jesus for who he really is and worships. The blind man sees Jesus when the brightest and the most committed of Jewish people are blind to him. The blind man worships Jesus while the religious leaders sit around in a circle talking about 
how great they're handling this whole Jesus thing. Verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And there were some Pharisees there with him. They heard him say this. And their heart rate went up a little bit. And their palms got a little sweaty. They got a little hot under the collar, and they said to him, What are you saying? That we're blind too? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Because, face it, God's grace is resistible. We as human beings have been given authority over our lives and over, the, over, over our world in a, in a way such that we don't have to do what God's grace would invite us to do. He doesn't impose his grace on people who don't want it. He's not holding people on the floor saying, I forgive you. But when you choose to live in the place where all of your snacks are within arm's reach, despite what you know about yourself, there isn't room for grace to operate in that place. Your guilt remains. When you choose to get angry when somebody confronts you on an obvious growth area. When you choose to live in denial about your own blindness, there isn't room for grace to work. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, if, if we're to be people who are living in God's grace together, then there really isn't room for pride or, or self-righteousness among us. You know, when we gather, there's an invitation to the kind of humble unity that, that makes room for God's grace to be present in our midst. There's potential for the kind of, of friendships and, and the kind of, of relational intimacy where we're challenged and we're inspired by one another on toward love and good works, as the New Testament says. You know, I would bet that every single person in this room and in the included classrooms upstairs have an area of great need in their lives. I would bet that you have things that you're desperate to see God do. I would bet there's those of us who have sinful habits or, or hang-ups or things that keep just dragging us down or coming back to haunt us. I would bet that there's people among us who have these fears or these anxieties or this desire to be able to control things that, that, that keeps our minds imprisoned rather than living as God intended us to be. Some of us are probably struggling with unexplainable feelings of just indifference and numbness. Numbness to the voice of God in our lives. Numbness to the the passion for living that he's designed us to have. You don't even know why you would feel this way. And, and, and yet, if you could step outside of your mind for a moment, if you could step outside of your experience, if you were given the ability to you know, look from up above, you'd say to yourself, man, this is remarkable. This person who's struggling 
and hurting is the same person who walks in and says, I'm good, how are you? Anytime someone says, hi, how are you? This person who is, uh, how remarkable, this, per- this person who puts hours into connecting with all of the world in a digital landscape is complaining all of the time that they feel lonely and they feel isolated and that they don't have any time. How remarkable this person who's hanging by a thread looks to everyone around them like they're holding everything together. Isn't it remarkable, if you think about it, that this experiment that God's doing in humanity is just the blind leading the blind? We're all pretty blind. And yet we have a Savior who can open our eyes and who's inviting us to follow him together. We need a community where it's okay to come in and be honest about our blindness. And so I thought uh, an appropriate next step along these lines would be to give us a group exercise to do. So who's excited for a little group exercise? Like, I don't know, let's hear what it is. All right, so we're going to pass the mic around the room and confess your deepest, darkest sin. No, I, I want us to get into some small groups. And, and oftentimes when we do that, we do some discussion questions or, or things like that. But I, I'm thinking like two to four people, a little bit smaller, get a little bit smaller. And, and the thing I want to challenge you to do is each person in the group is going to share one prayer request. And the rule for that prayer request is it has to be for you. I know that your nephew or your son or your daughter or your third cousin, like I know that they have needs in their life too. But as an exercise of vulnerability, set it all aside. And what can we pray for for you? What's going on in your heart? What's a need in your life? I know there's other legitimate needs out there, but this is about us practicing humility. And sometimes it's really, really easy to be to only talk about if we're talking about needs i'll talk about everybody else's needs i'll avoid talking about my own so if you're willing to do this experiment with me uh we'll we'll take a few minutes we'll do this and then um and then we will pray for one another and so at least one person in the group will pray for another this is another reason why just two to four because we don't have tons of time and so um but uh let's pray lord thank you for the opportunity to connect with each other I pray your Holy Spirit would just, uh, would just whisper to each of us about that need that we have in our lives that would be good to share with another person or two right now. Thank you for being a God who speaks. And, and we, just, we just believe in your ability to guide us in this time. And so... Uh, Help this to be fruitful ministry to one another as we uh, take a few minutes to pray for one another and, uh, and just thank you for what you're doing in our lives, our hearts, and in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.